Hi, this is Tracy with Focus on Women, and welcome to our fifth season of the podcast. Focus on Women is an organization supporting women in the photography and videography industry. From PAs to producers, photographers, directors to stylists, art directors, and photo agents, giving them all a seat at the table. Please check us out at focusonwomen.org. Make sure to subscribe to listen to our podcast, volunteer, or even reach out and be featured on our next podcast season. Thanks for your support. This is Tracy with Focus on Women, and today we are with Ian Price Murphy. She is the founder of Moxie Bookkeeping, based in New York and California. She helps many creatives with the tedious task of bookkeeping and finances, and I can't wait to hear her story of how she got started. So welcome, Ian. Thank you. And we have Shelly Waldman, our awesome producer here with us, too. Hello, Shelly. Welcome. Hi, everyone. Um, so we're going to just ask Ian a couple quick icebreaker type rapid fire questions for your morning beverage, coffee or tea, coffee. Okay. Favorite location, beach or mountains. Ooh, tough. I'm going to say, I'm going to say beach cause I'm in the mountains. So the mountains are my normal daily bliss, but, and I've been missing the beach. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay. Favorite pizza topping? Uh, Cheese. Lots (laughs) of cheese. Great. And what are you currently binging since we're all stuck in the pandemic still? What are we binge watching on? Ooh, binge watching. Um, I I actually just started the Mindy Project. Which is out forever, but I've never seen it. I haven't Um, either. It's cute. I like it. I, of course, I just finished binging Bridgerton a a little late to the party on that but but got it done um and Blackish is another one that that I just recently signed up for Hulu and like there's seven seasons of how did I miss this I know lots of clearly lots of binging going on nice nice in between bookkeeping of course (laughs) so let's talk uh Ian and I met just on LinkedIn, we got connected through that lovely network. Um, So I don't know much about you or your story or how you got into bookkeeping. So let's take you back to school and tell us where you grew up and and what led you down this path. All the way back. All the way back. All the way back. Um, Well, I'm a second generation California native, which is how I ended up back here. Um, But my dad is a Jersey boy, even though he does not have the accent. Not sure how that skipped him. Um, And so when I was growing up, I really thought I wanted to be a teacher. Like I was very clear about that at a very young age. And um, when I graduated from high school in California, I went back east to go to school to, you know, be with the rest of my roots. Um, My grandmother grew up in Manhattan. Her grandmother grew up in Manhattan. She was actually up in, in Harlem when it was still Dutch dairy farms. So I was like, I gotta go back east. And, and showing up in New York answered so many questions for me about why I am the way that I am, that somehow, even though the Jersey accent didn't make it down, that like direct, no nonsense, you know, telling it like it is definitely made it to me. So, so I felt very at home in New York and I went to uh, the new school for my undergraduate degree and just got a nice liberal arts 
degree, I, again, I thought I wanted to teach. And, and what, what broke that illusion for me was my senior internship was at a last stop high school in the Lower East Side of New York City. And it was brutal. So they just threw you to the wolves in your internship. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was, you know, I want to make a difference, which I absolutely did. And it was adorable. I just did not. uh, Yeah, I just didn't know. I didn't know what I didn't know. And it's and I had actually volunteered during high school with a, a really cool program called Amigos de las Americas that sends high school age kids down to Latin America to do um, community development projects, you know. So I thought, you know, like, ah, I've seen poverty. I've lived on a, you know, in a hut with a dirt floor and <laughs> had to go to the well to get water. How hard could it be? Oh my goodness. Hard. Just emotionally, you know, like these poor kids were just suffering and the teachers were doing such a great job, but I just did not have the personal resources or the personal resilience to make it through. And I had to be like, so not teaching. <laughs> and I tried a couple of other things. Um, I actually volunteered to teach adult literacy through one of the unions in Manhattan for a while. And that was super fun, but it was a volunteer position. And every paid teaching gig that I got just wasn't my deal. So, um, you know, and, and, and the sort of next wave of this story is that through all of this, I'm, I'm sort of chronically underemployed. So I'm working full time, but I'm making these terrible wages, terrible wages, and trying to supplement that with bartending and, you know, deciding that maybe what I really want is a theater career. And, you know, I just still had stuck in my head this uh, nonsense, if you will, that follow your passion and the money will come or work hard and you'll succeed. And what those two pieces of brilliant non-advice did was dig me so far into debt from just day-to-day living that in my mid-20s, I had to declare bankruptcy because I was like, at $9 an hour, I'm going to be paying this off for literally the rest of my life at 37% interest or whatever the credit cards were, 27. Maybe I'm exaggerating a little. <laughs> but but it was just, it was devastating. It went against every principle that I had. You know, I'm a person of my word. What I say, you know, my word is my bond. If I say it, I'll do it. Da, da, da. And so it felt like such a such a disappointment to myself, to my family, to to my, you know, values. And a little less so um, to to the people that I borrowed money from because they they were credit card companies. You know, it wasn't like I owed a, a bill to my mom and pop shop. So that <laughs> gave me a little bit of comfort, but not really. And and I just it was such a slap in the face wake up call that despite all of my education, I didn't know anything about money. I was financially illiterate. Here I was teaching people how to read but no one was teaching me how money works. And so I made myself the promise that I was never going to be in debt again. And other than my mortgage, I haven't been, which is super great. Um, But that definitely got me revved up to learn about money stuff. And I realized that my only marketable skill was bookkeeping. Um, 
and I had been working as a, as a, I got hired to be a receptionist for a woman that owned her own company just to pick up her phones. And within a year I was her office manager and I was like negotiating contracts for her, et cetera. But she also didn't understand money at all. So when I was like, Hey, listen, you know, people to do what I do get paid like two, three times more than what you're paying me. She's like, I'll give you a quarter more. And <laughs> what I took that as was, oh, that must mean that that's all this position is really worth. The people that are earning more must have, you know, specific education or an accounting degree, or I didn't even know what, because I didn't know what I didn't know. And so once, you know, so, so bankruptcy forced me to reevaluate all of this and to say, you know, if I go do this thing, not the general admin thing, but just this bookkeeping thing that it turns out I really actually enjoy, the only place in life I've ever found achievable perfection, which is pretty darn satisfying. Well, you know, numbers will do that. Right? (laughs) I know. Those of us who know, know. It's very exciting. Especially after like liberal arts, you know, like what did the poet mean when she said, and you can say anything you want. Yeah. And you're Um, like, no, but two plus two actually equals four. (laughs) Only four, only four, not just four, but only four. And if it doesn't, you go back and you go, oh, that's because you made your two a three. That's the problem. It's no, no big deal. We'll fix it. Perfection. So, so I took this niche down skill to my, to my people that I love, which are my creatives and my service providers and uh, artisans and crafts people and was able to immediately triple my income. (laughs) (laughs) because I was now in charge of it. So that then led to me having a bookkeeping service. And then in 2003, we hired our first employee who, God love her, she's still with us. And yeah. Good for you. I know. I mean, some of that's luck, but some of that's like, I'm doing something right. Um, And now there's 10 of us. Wow. That's amazing. So I'm a bit of a numbers geek too. Um, I love that you have profit first sitting in the background there. That's a book I recommend to many, many people. Um, but my background's actually in accounting and financial analytics. So we can sit here and talk about number perfection and all this, this entire podcast. I think we'll bore Tracy to death though. So (laughs) I'm not a numbers person, but I will say, and I will admit since we're talking numbers and finances, I'm one of those people that's was also not taught anything about money and found myself in the same situation with bankruptcy and such a low point, such a low point personally and emotionally to go through something like that. And then what you learn from it is exponential, quite honestly, right? Um, So I'm on the other side of that, knowing that I, and I, because of that, have now surrounded myself with people who help me with the part that I'm not good at. Yeah. So, and I, I mean, I love a profit first is my whole jam. Like that's what we do is profit first bookkeeping. We don't do bookkeeping without the profit first. You don't have to do it with us, but you got to do it. Um, and, and just to, you know, to remind, I think what, what helps me in telling my story is reminding people who don't think of themselves as good with numbers that, you know, it's, it's a skill, not a talent like learning to drive a car. I love to talk about how terrified I was the first time I tried to learn to drive on my dad's Volkswagen stick shift, but I do okay now. Right. And, and so, um, but I still don't love to drive. I'm always going to let some, you know, I'm going to let whoever else wants to drive the car drive, not because I can't, or I'm not good at it. It's just not, I'd rather look out the window. And so that's kind of, 
you know, what I, what I like to remind people of when it comes to the money stuff is like, you can learn this and for your own feelings of competence and completeness, it's great for you to understand it, but you don't have to do it. Right. Right. I like that. I think, um, can we talk about your clientele? Like, so when you started the bookkeeping, like what were some of the first people that you reached out? You mentioned, I know you mostly work with creatives and entrepreneur kind of people. So the woman that I was working for as a receptionist uh, had a custom tile setting business. She did artistic tile and she and I parted on very friendly terms. And so she essentially said like, yeah, I don't want to pay you more. I get you don't want to work for this amount. I'll go find someone who does. And, and uh, introduced me to her network of people, many of whom I already knew from working with her. So it was immediately interior designers and, you know, craftspeople and, um, artists and art dealers. So, so it was a, it was a very easy uh, move into my ideal client. I never really had to spend time figuring it out, partly because I have an arts background. My sister's a filmmaker. My father's a musician. Um, So those are the people that I'm comfortable with. And those are the people that I feel like I can really bring my own particular sass to Mm -hmm. Um, that they really appreciate. I mean, again, because we're talking early 1990s here where not every accountant had pink hair. Um, you know, that was still a little bit of a weird thing. And so my artists would see me and they would just visibly relax, you know, like, oh, thank you for not having a brown rumpled suit and ugly shoes. <laughs> right. Cool. I can listen to you. You've hard, you've failed at money too. Yay, we can talk. And right. and so it just it's just always been really easy. You know, we also have a huge um nonprofit part of our business. About 30% of our clients are nonprofits. Nice. We just, we love working with people who, who love what they do and that they tend to fall into those two categories. Right. Right. Cool. So what can you, let's talk a little bit more about um, why money scares people and what are, what are some things you can share? What, what little tidbits of wisdom can you share with us? Like what are the top three things you feel scare us about money? That's such a good question. I don't know that I've really reached the root of that for the individual. Um, I had one client who I love who she's a designer and she like won't even open her own mail. She's just scared to know what's in there. Wow. And, you know, so, so I try to sort of take that double approach of, you know, we're going to do this with you, not for you because whatever's in there isn't as scary as you think it is. You know, even if you open it up and you've got a $10,000 tax bill from the IRS, like yuck and let's handle it. So, so again, I think I just have a really pragmatic approach. Um, But I think, you know, I think what most people fear is, is actually potentially not personal fear, but cultural shame. Mm this idea that we're supposed to just know about money stuff, right? We're just supposed to like the Lamborghini's just supposed to generate in the yard so we can go lean against it and look cool or whatever. So I, you know, and, and part of that is it's, it's just not something that's really talked openly about, which I also think is one of the brilliant things about profit first that's based on percentages. So you can have very open conversations without feeling, you know, it's like being in a bikini rather than being naked. Like you're showing it all, but, but you still got a little bit of coverage. Um, 
that that you know if i were to say to someone hey i make a hundred thousand dollars a year one person would go oh so little and one person would go oh so much and they would both have emotions about my financial reality which is kind of none of their business but knowing that i think just terrifies us of of somehow even though intellectually we know we are we're not our job and intellectually we know our financial worth is not our human worth it's hard to believe that everyone around us gets that too and i i to me i think that's just a big piece of the fear i don't know tracy why are you afraid of money yeah i think you're right i think it is cultural i hadn't thought about that but i think you're right it's this whole um you know, you're competing, especially, I think, maybe even in our world of photography, right? We're very competitive people as creatives and in some degree, you know, and if you're in an industry that's oversaturated, like photography, you're, you're hustling constantly to be the one above, you know, or get the job or be the one they choose, you know? And so you don't, you don't want to share ever how much you charged or what you're making or what you're not making. Um, And I think that even gets harder and harder with social media now, you know, like I, I find myself, this happened this morning, like I woke up and then I, first thing I did was pick up my phone, which is what I really try not to do. And then I went to Instagram and immediately saw two people post something about a company that I've been after for years. And I just ruined my whole day. Like it just brings you down. You know, you just feel like you're shamed and you don't even know why you're shamed. (laughs) Sadly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the to your point, Ian, about you know, kind of this like cultural shame. Uh, I've had friends. I grew up in a household very different than your two experiences, which is, you know, my dad was very much about teaching us about money at a young age and having a bank book. Like we used to have the little book and go to the bank and they'd run it through the machine. You're like, look, I deposited my twenty dollar birthday check and now I have a hundred dollars in my account. Yay! And then my dad would say, well, what are you saving for? right? Like, what do you want to spend this on? And so I learned really young, like it was exciting to go to the bank. It was exciting to have my book. And I kind of sad they don't have that anymore. (laughs) um, Because it was actually a physical representation of what is in the bank, which now we're all digital. So we kind of forget that there's actually a transaction happening, that there's actually a shift of tender. Um, And maybe about 20 years ago, I worked at a university and this girl came to me and she said, oh, you have this whole background in like understanding money, just like innately from your childhood. Can you help me get out of debt? And I was like, oh, sure. You know, we opened a spreadsheet. I put some numbers down for her. If you pay so much money every month towards this, like within five years, you'll be debt free. Thankfully, I'm happy to say she's completely debt free now. And she still has that spreadsheet and she manages her money. But up until that point, no one had said to her, like, here's how to manage your books. You know, like simple math really can help like do it. And, um, I, and I think like, even as like a young kid, even now as an adult, like I never realized like what a gift that was for my parents. Um, and how many people I meet all the time that are like, I don't understand money. Or I grew up in a house floor where it was shameful or guilt, like you were guilted if you wanted money. Uh, or even thought about money, especially those that grew up in like a Catholic home, right? Money is, is sin. You shouldn't want money. Mm-hmm. So I yeah. think you're really onto something when you talk about like the cultural shame or the household shame. Um, shame and guilt were de- are definitely like big things that come up when I talk to my friends about what is their 
holdups about money. Yeah. And then I think the other thing too is that um, I think would be interesting to hear your opinion on Ian is, you know, as freelancers and people who own their own, their own businesses, right. Um, you know, they're, they're taught the photography and they're taught the skills and we're taught, you know, I know how to, you know, create a bid maybe, or, but I know how to, I know how to use my camera. I know what lighting I need. I know what, you know, I know how to make it look this way. I know how to retouch it. I have no idea what to do with that check when I get paid or how much taxes I'm going to end up owing off of that check once I get paid, you know, where, yeah, where can you lead us, you know, in how do entrepreneurs, you know, um, who are really left brain, is that right? Yeah. Who are really left brain. How do they navigate that whole water without hiring someone like you to help them. But beyond that, you know, what can you share with us on good skill sets to think about? Yes. Um, before I do that, I just want to go back and tell Shelly to give her dad a hug from me. And, and partly it's because it's not, because I had the little passbook too. It's the, what are you saving for, right? Connecting to that why can help bridge the fear in a lot of ways and give you that strength and motivation to, to pursue the information that feels um, overwhelming, scary, or, or whatever it feels like. So in terms of developing those skills, now that we've got a good um, reason why we're going to go do it, uh, in New York City at least, and I think they've moved online, but I don't know if they're national yet, there is a fantastic organization called the Workshop in Business opportunity, I believe, Weibo.org. That's how I know them. They have a 16-week low-cost boot camp, like uh, under $500 the last time I looked. Wow. Um, And they take you through all of the things you need to know about running a small business. How do you decide your ideal client? How do you find your ideal client? How do you reach your ideal client? How do you price your services. What is a break-even point? So I often go in and volunteer and teach a couple of sections in there, which is this like find your break-even because it's where everybody gets lost. Um, you know, the, 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 the questions around money are legion. So there's a whole section about how do I price? How do I find the right price for my services that has to do with What's your market like? Which clients are you going after? What's the opportunity? You know, how do you want to position yourself? Because your pricing positions you, right? If you're charging $1,000 a session, you're going to be working with different people than if you charge $300 a session. So, so that's part of it is, you know, understanding how your prices affect your, the perception of who you are and what you offer. And then making sure that whatever your pricing is, it's enough to pay for your personal life. And so that's where it kind of gets, this is where I think people get get overwhelmed and freaked out is, but I don't know. How am I supposed to know that? And, And so here again, I think where Profit First comes in is to be able to say, if you are in the early stages of your business, or if you're not yet able to take your business full time, you still have to cover those expenses. You're just covering them from your personal pocket instead of from somebody else's pocket. That's still kind of 
like income to your business, even though it's not taxable income, it's not earned income. You need to know what is the amount that I can afford to realistically and sustainably put into my business each month without jeopardizing my personal financial future. So maybe it's only $1,000 a month. Great. Then I'm going to use the profit for a system and, and put that on top of that $1,000. And I might not use their target percentages because if it's not earned, I don't need to set aside 15% for tax. And because it's my money, I don't necessarily need to set, set aside 50% to pay myself. But I do want to say I'm going to start putting 1% into profit and 1% into owner's pay and uh, you know 1% wherever so that I have this sort of system in place so that when I start to earn a little bit of money, it offsets how much I need to put in personally and I can just flow that money into the different jobs and homes, right? I say give every dollar a job, give every dollar a home, separate bank accounts lets you look at your um, bank app on your phone, which is the digital version of our passbook, so that we can see how much is in there and have that be a real number of what we can use rather than, oh, but how much of that is taxes? And oh, but how much of that do I need to, to buy a new lens? And oh, but, you know, uh, uh, uh. and so what ends up happening is that a lot of business owners either take it all out and then have to put it back in or leave it all in and are like, as one of my business coach friends says, starving at the barbecue, like the money's there. You should be taking some of it home. That's <laughs> the point of a business. It's there to support you, not the other way around. And I have kind of a tragic story of a, of a personal friend of mine who opened a cheese shop in Seattle. And she, because she did not have this structure, as many times as I offered to help, she did not want my help. She didn't really, you know, she kept complaining about, oh, minimum wage is too high and taxes are too high and this is too high. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You're not earning enough to sustain your business. And if that's the cap on your earnings, if you're never going to make more than you're making in a month, then your expenses are too high and you have an unsustainable business, which unfortunately, eventually she found out the hard way, which again, you know, like that's, uh, that's what I'm trying to avoid for everyone, like, let's not all find out the hard way. Enough of us have found out the hard way. Right. So we can help you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just curious, for those that don't know Profit First, yes. um, talk a little bit about the buckets of money, because we're kind of referencing that a lot in this episode. Yeah. So go get the book and read the book, or get the audio book. It's free at the library. You can do it. Um, it's the envelope system. It's nothing new. It's not a new system. It's just... Um, presented in a way that I think makes a lot of sense to people, me specifically, um, and, and people who don't love the money stuff and don't love spreadsheets. So the idea, as I said, is you give every dollar a job, you give every dollar a home. So that when you get a thousand dollar check in, that goes into a, a bank account that you've labeled income and it collects there until you're ready to slice the pie and feed the, feed the people. And you predetermine how much do you need for each of those areas, operating expenses, owner's pay, setting aside for taxes, setting aside for profit. So that's five bank accounts uh, total for the general setup. And the reason that we have all of these accounts is because it then becomes like a clear glass of water where I can see, am I pouring in more money 
faster than the water money that I'm drinking. And I can do that without letting the, the cup suddenly be empty and the waiter's nowhere to be, to be found, right? So, so it gives me a cushion. So again, you know, at the beginning of a, a downturn or a slow period, I can see that there's a cushion in my bank account, in my operating expenses account that's going to carry me through, or even in my owner's pay account that's going to carry me through, so that as I start pouring in less, so the water level is slowly going down, I can see that before I run out of money and go, oh, I need to pivot, adjust, change, start doing something, stop doing something so that I can balance that water level out again. Um, it's Again, it's a ridiculously simple system. If you don't like math, that's a terrible thing to say because it's simple, but it's not easy. Um, but that's why there's there's guides and folks like me around to, to help walk you through it. You know, we do group classes, we do private, we've got a little, you know, $97 online course if you want to just watch it that way. But I think reading the book is, is a, is a great way to get started. And how often do you recommend that people divide up that pie? You know, is it a weekly thing, monthly thing, quarterly? Um, so I, I actually recommend starting with what I call money dates <laughs> in, a, in a desperate attempt to try and get people who don't like this stuff to, to like it. And what I mean by a money date is to pick a day of the week to do your bookkeeping, which is different than profit first, only once a week. It only has to be for 15 minutes, but you need to spend five minutes before that 15 minutes making sure that it is the um, most comfortable environment that you can put yourself in. So favorite beverage, favorite music, temperature is okay, the lighting is right. You know, if you have a favorite scented candle, whatever it is, go for it. This is why I call it a date. You know, it's not romantic, but make it nice. And then you just sit down and set a timer and just do your bookkeeping for 15 minutes. And when you're done, you're done. Does it matter if you finished or not? That's all you have to do. It's just to like get this habit started. And so for profit first, it sort of depends on how you earn money. You know, are you getting big chunks occasionally or are you getting lots of little chunks more often? Um, if, if you just want a starting place, start with twice a month. Twice a month is a nice way to like watch the waves and the tide so that you can see not only the, the larger seasonal movements of how money comes in and out, like if you're a wedding photographer, you know you've got a season. If you're, you know, a, a portrait photographer, you've got a couple of seasons. But also to just see, like, does everybody pay in the first week? Does everybody pay in the last week? Like, how does the money happen? And then if you figure out, like, I'm, I'm not running out of money in my operating account. Once a month is fine. Once a month is fine. Um, and again, I think that's where someone who, who's sort of a certified guide can really help tailor that suit to fit. Um, if you, if you do run payroll, I, I think doing it on the payroll schedule is the easiest way to do it. Right, because you have to sit down and do it anyway. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, you want to make sure there's enough money in there to cover payroll. You're going to check anyways. You might as well fill, fill the bucket back up. Right. So I'm really curious because one of the things I really loved about Profit First is how he talks about even if you're in debt to make sure you're taking profit out. And to, can you talk a little bit about that mind switch for especially the creatives that you work with of explaining that you actually are making an owner profit before you pay your debt? Yes. 
so, so, you know, profit, I think is a, um, again, a word that a lot of emotion gets attached to. And I define profit as purpose, right? It's, it's security, it's safety, it's growth, it's emergency fund, it's your take home pay, it's your financial future, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the profit versus system breaks out owner's pay separate from profit because you should be getting paid for what you're doing in the business as well as the fact that you own the business. Right. Employee number one versus the owner of the business. Employee number one. You are, in fact, your most important employee, no matter how many employees you have. And I say that as someone who deeply loves her employees. Right. But it's like putting your own oxygen mask on first. You know, you can't help anybody else out if you're passing out because you're not breathing. So so the idea is to set aside money for your pay and then set aside money for profit. So the, the profit in the profit first system is held for three months in a separate account to to make sure that you don't have an emergency extenuating circumstances like, you know, a global pandemic that might need to temporarily change your use of that money. And so quarterly, you do a profit distribution just like as if you were an investor in the business. And so quarterly, you're going into your profit account and taking half. So half stays there to become that long-term savings, building that up. And half comes out to reward you and to move you towards your personal goals, often number one of which is getting out of debt. And, And so what I like to say is leave half in there, take half out. But of the half that you take out, only put 90 or 95% towards your debt. I still really want everyone to get acclimated to this idea that the business is there to make your life easier. And so if all you do with that five or 1% left over is go buy an ice cream cone for yourself, do it. Celebrate the win. You know, you deserve, you deserve a win. <laughs> yes. A hundred percent. You know, it might not be the Ferrari, but you could afford the matchbox version. Yeah. And if that's what brings you joy, girl, do it. Cool. I wanted to give a shout out today to my good friend and colleague, Betsy Davison, and her company, Space for Arts. Space for Arts is a global B2B marketplace for professional production spaces, i.e. studios. Its platform presents a vetted inventory of professional production spaces with robust search tools, optimized for the needs of production professionals, supported by communication alerts, which assist in the rapid decision cycles of production. Space for Arts offers a management solution which mirrors entrenched practices, simplifies and automates them, thus providing a powerful time-saving resource to both studio owners and production professionals. By addressing the significant pain points for both sides of the market, Space for Arts will capture a high percentage of available bookings, becoming the industry's default resource for booking and managing production spaces. Think of it as an open table meets Airbnb meets CRM software. It's the perfect solution for professional production space integration. So what are some of the common mistakes that we make? 
Or like, do you see a pattern with our group of people? Um, waiting until it's too late, right? Letting the mess happen until you're in such pain that you have to now start all over or unwind a very tangled ball of yarn. Um, not trusting your own instincts is a mm. huge one around money. You know, you know, you're an expert in what you do. Give yourself a little credit. You're not, you're not, you know, it doesn't mean you don't know anything about anything. So I've had people come to me where they've been paying a bookkeeper for a year or more, but they're like, I don't really know what she does. I don't know if I can't make sense of any of it. I've asked for some reports. I don't really know if that's what I'm getting. Those are all red flags to me, right? You're the owner of the business. You don't have to do it, but you've got to understand what's going on. So if you're not getting complete information or if you have an unfortunately stereotypical bookkeeper who are much more task-focused than people-focused, and even though they may be a fantastic bookkeeper, they may not be able to explain to you why they're a fantastic bookkeeper, then there's some very simple things that can be changed to make it feel more accessible to you. Oftentimes, the first thing I do is go through the chart of accounts and say, do you use inventory? Well, then let's hide it. You know, do you, do you use dues and subscriptions? Oh, you do, but you use it for 12 different things. Well, let's separate that out. If you don't think it's called dues and subscriptions, let's rename it to what you think it should be. And again, amen to renaming things. Right. Oh my God. That was a game changer. Cause I was like, dues and subscriptions. Like that's not what, what I call these things. Yes. Oh my gosh. But because you know, the software gave this to me. They must know. They don't know crap. You're the owner of your business. You know what you care about. You know the questions that you're asking. Let's structure it so that those are the answers that your system is producing. Um, so I would say get help early rather than late so that, you've, so that you've got the chance, you know, get the map. And now you can drive on your own. You don't need me backseat driving for you the whole way. Um, Definitely ask the questions that are important to you and find someone that doesn't make you feel yucky about the way that they answer it. And that they answer it. And that they actually answer it. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Which are famous for. Well, I mean, I think, um, I think it's a common thing that comes up, especially, you know, around end of February, beginning March, people are like, I, I need a bookkeeper or I need a CPA. I have to get all my stuff ready for, you know, tax season. And then there's like this flurry of different forums, you know, where people will post like, you know, all their recommendations. And then you'll start to see like the subtleties pop in where it's like, I don't know about that person or I've worked with that person, but, and then you're like, oh gosh, it must've been a big, but if <laughs> you're actually putting this on a public forum, um, and I actually have a good friend who works with a bookkeeper. And to your point of like the task versus the people, they're very task oriented. But when she asks questions, she gets like no response. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have a bookkeeper that that um, works with me who prefers not to be on the phone with her clients. She just it makes her uncomfortable. She is one of the best bookkeepers we have. She's been with us for years. I hope she stays with us forever. She is incredible. And so we try to do us all a favor by not forcing her to do that, you know, by letting her take on all the crazy last minute projects that come in 
you know, and that, and that what we say is, well, you know, let's, let's help you. And, and because we've had that space for her, she's totally grown into seeing the ways that we respond to people to drafting it herself and being like, is this okay? What would you change? And, and like really having the opportunity for growth if she wants to, which um, again, she has, and that's why she's my staff because I only hire the best. But again, I mean, that's a credit to you as a supervisor to say, I see the genius that you bring to the table. Let's lean into your strengths and support you where you're weak. And then if you want to work on those weaknesses, we're here for you. Yeah. So kudos. Yeah. And, and that's a lot of what our firm does as well is to work with people who have a bookkeeper or are their own bookkeeper and just need a double check. They just want a second set of eyes you know, where we can be like, actually, it looks fine. It's just some renaming stuff where I just need to explain to you what a liability is. And then it's all going to make sense. You know, you can ignore retained earnings. That's okay. Um, you know, those, those just sort of little pieces for, for getting those questions answered. And I would also say, you know, just the timeliness of this being end of February, that if you're looking for a CPA or a bookkeeper, because you need to get everything from last year in order, please just file an extension. That's not going to get you audited. It's okay. It happens all the time. It will make your CPA love you and it will give everyone the space to make sure that things are done correctly rather than rushed through. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's a great idea because nobody wants to work under pressure. And I feel like trying to find someone at this time of year is kind of difficult. They're all going to say no. (laughs) Really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the changes you've seen this year? Can we talk about some of the tax changes that maybe would be good tips to know? We can try. I'm not a taxi person. Okay. I, I don't do compliancy stuff. I let okay. the CPAs and the tax professionals do that. I do more management stuff. Doesn't mean I don't have an opinion. Just means I might, I might straight up not know, and I'll, and I'll tell you that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> What's out there right now that you know you're advising your current people to, to ask their CPA about maybe? Yeah. Um, the thing that I'm actually t- directing people towards asking specifically because I've heard, but is not confirmed as far as I know, is that I've heard in an effort to try to boost the uh, restaurant industry a little bit that for 2021 meals may go back to being 100% deductible instead of 50% deductible to get people out and eating and supporting local business again. So if that's true, wow. <laughs> that would be nice. Very exciting for us for many reasons, right? Getting to go eat out again, outside, see faces from distances. and Right. Yeah. That's a great um, idea, though, to go back. I mean, I really hope help that boost that is, them. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, I, you know, I'm a huge fan of checking in with your account quarterly. I just think that it's a good idea to touch base by phone once a quarter. It prevents the year-end pileup. It lets your accountant ask you things where you're like, oh, yes, shoot, I forgot. <laughs> I did right. do that. <laughs> buy a major, you know, a new computer, a new camera, a new whatever light system. And it helps them talk to you about, because the changes just happen so fast. You know, usually there's a little couple of changes every year, but Right now, things are sometimes changing daily with the the PPP stuff. So just being able to send your reports over to your accountant and say, can we just have a 30-minute, 15-minute call to just make sure that I'm on track um, 
can really help because, you know, my accountant who I talk to quarterly, she gives me the, you know, my, my monthly estimated based on last year's numbers, which is fine. But if I'm doing significantly more or significantly less work than that, if I talk to her on the phone, she'll go, oh, yeah, cross that out and put in this other number instead, or yeah, round up or yeah, round down. And, and so again, it just gives me the confidence to do what I wanted to do anyways. Or she can say, let's wait and see, let's wait another quarter, whatever. So, so just having, and it keeps me connected to her. So it keeps me thinking in that strategic way. It keeps her thinking strategically for me and with me um, and just prevents a lot of problems of, you know, I've had so many clients say, you know, my, I talked to my accountant and they said, oh, if you'd only done this last year. Well, I don't need to know that now. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But so I on think, that, yeah, go ahead, Shell. I was just going to say, so like, is there things that you advise your clients to look at at a more for, like regular basis, like certain reports to run, whether it's cash flow or, you know, um, a P&L? Yeah. Uh, so what, what we are primary core function as a bookkeeping firm is to close the books monthly. And part of that is um, to review whatever you or your bookkeeper did to look for anything that we think looks weird and to email you those reports so that you've got a reminder in your inbox to look at them. And yeah, you know, ideally you're looking at least at your P&L, um, ideally also at payables and receivables if you have those things. I don't really ask my clients to look at, at the, the balance sheet, mostly because half of it just confuses and frustrates them and they're looking at their um, banking app anyway so they know, they know what their balance is and since everybody does profit first we don't need a cash flow statement because they know their cash flow better than that statement could ever say to them um so yeah i want you looking at that monthly or you know every time you do allocations if you want but at least monthly for sure yeah okay um how can we wrap up? What other good, you, you have so much good information. I'm like, we're going to have to have a whole nother, maybe we could do a workshop with you for some of I'd our, love to do a workshop. Yeah. Some of our young ladies who are getting started. Like, cause I feel like that's where the, the bread and butter really is, which is read the book profit first, which I've never read. So now it's on my list. Um, but what other little, what other, I don't know. What are some tips maybe on organizing your finances? You know, like what's the quick. Yeah. And it's going to sound funny because it's very non-financial. Know what you care about. Know the questions or spend time thinking about the questions that you're going to want to ask to figure out how you're doing. So that could sound like how many business headshots did I do versus family portraits? Or how many weddings did I do versus private events? Whatever the metrics are for you in terms of how am I earning money? What is it costing me to earn that? And what do I need to cover with what's left over? That's going to give you your chart of accounts. And so to me, the job of a good bookkeeper or a good financial guide is someone who can translate your English into bookkeeping software and that your tax person should translate your bookkeeping software into government form language, which is why we can't understand them when they do talk to us. So, you, you know, I mean, I think it's, I, I think it's 
opening up five bank accounts at once when you're not clear on the purpose or the process can feel like too much. So just open one savings account and start to put 1% of your income in there before you do anything else. And then see if that feels exciting and motivating to dig a little deeper, maybe read the book. Um, maybe not, you know, you can get all the information in the book other ways as well. So I'd love to do a workshop. I have a workshop that um, is still in my brain called the M&M game, because when I did it in person, I handed out M&Ms where we use little M&Ms to like track how money moves. And we do it once the way that everybody tracks their money. And then once how different does that look in profit first takes about an hour. I think it's super fun. Um, But, you know, but I can, I can also just lead people through that, the handholding of the math. Because I know that's not people's favorite part. That's what calculators are for. Right. Right. Awesome. Okay. Anything else, Shelly? Before we close? I'm sure I'll think of something. I know. After There's the so fact. many. Yeah. <laughs> and I can keep um, talking for hours. So you're going to have mean, to like be done. <laughs> um, I mean, I think... Bo- one of the questions that I, I would love to wrap on is um, just future thinking, right? We've been talking about taking profit out, but as a business owner, do you recommend people open like the difference between an IRA and a SEP mm. or a simple, right? So I know they're, they're different things, right? I have a financial background. I understand those different yeah. things, but is there just a simple, uh, other than just saving, right? Because I mean, if I have profit, do I put that profit into my retirement account? Or do I, or is that coming from my, my employee number one account? Where does that factor in? Um, Good question. So that's sort of the, the deeply entwined personal part, unless you're an S corp and have a corporate retirement plan, which we do in our business, because then the business can match everybody. And it's more of a write-off to come back into our own pockets, which is great. Uh, What I would say is when you're choosing the right retirement plan, I wouldn't ask your bookkeeper. You know, again, I have opinions on these things, but really you should just go to an expert, you know, that that a financial planner will help you pick the exact right thing for your circumstance because there are certain kinds of uh, retirement vehicles that will allow you to put way more in. But if and when you hire your first employee, you're obligated to put in way lots for them too, which doesn't always fit with a plan unless that unless that's a family member. So in terms of how do you fund your own retirement and does that come from owner's pay or profit, there's no reason it couldn't come from both. I would say it's uh, smarter to have that be a regular part of when you take the owner's pay and pay yourself, whether you're paying yourself you know, as a draw or through payroll, part of that should immediately go to your, to your retirement savings, your own personal emergency savings, paying down your personal debt, personal vacation, personal needs, et cetera. Um, you know, one of the things I love about Profit First is it aligns with, with the personal spending percentages, um, which Elizabeth Warren made famous, but again, we're around long before her, of more than 50% of your income shouldn't be spent on needs, now you get to define needs. 30% on wants. Again, that there's a little gray area there. And 20% on savings. So I, I think that that should really be handled regularly. I want you to be saving more regularly than once a quarter. So if you take your quarterly profit distribution 
you're done with debt, you've got a new goal that could be towards that like amazing vacation you want to do, or really beefing up your retirement to catch up if you hadn't if you hadn't been saving in a while and now you find yourself in your 30s or your 40s, or both. You know, it it's give every dollar a job, not every big chunk of dollars a job. So you can split things up in whatever moves you forward on your personal goals, you know, even if it's just a little bump at a time, um, you might have some great reasons that you want to turbocharge this goal over this goal. But, but just like paying down debt and saving, as long as you're controlling expenses so that you've got enough to, to pay down debt and, and do some savings, which if you can't, we've got a bigger problem to talk about, you can be uh, moving towards both goals at once. Nice. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for the time that you gave us Yeah. and all your tips and tricks and everyone don't forget to buy profit first. <laughs> I'm sure you can find it on Amazon. Um, you, can on Amazon. you can find it at your library and keeping costs down. If you've got the Libby app, there you, you go. The audiobook or borrow it for free from the library. You could also download, I think his first two to three chapters for free. You can. Um, and bulk of the information is actually within those first three chapters. Yeah. Oh, good. And that, that you can actually do that from my website. We actually have that as one of our lead magnets. Oh, nice. Will you remind Fantastic. us what your URL is? Yes. It is moxiebookkeeping.com, which is M-O-X-I-E-B-O-O-K-K-E-E-P-I-N-G.com. That's a Jeopardy question. What's the <laughs> what's the one word in the English language with three triples, three doubles? <laughs> and it's bookkeeping. Nice. Nice. And then that's where people could find you. They can... Yep sign up for whatever they want there. You teach other classes and you consult, obviously. So yeah, we're going to do our next group program, which is learning and implementing profit first in April. Um, And we've got a free Facebook group called financial clarity for creative business owners, but you're welcome to come and lurk. And I try to do video recaps of the book for those who again are not uh, readers and prefer to, to digest things visually or, or just from someone who, isn't leaning on a Lamborghini. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. My, my Nissan Leaf instead. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in. Please remember to check out our website as well at focusonwomen.org. Uh, you can find us on iTunes and Spotify. Please subscribe and leave us a review. Also check out our latest uh, initiative, The Artist Collective. We're looking for photographers and illustrators interested in creating some awesome content that we can then sell for you. Everyone stay safe and keep your creative juices flowing. 